Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Herdmates Sodcast. I'm very pleased today that Dave Feldman would join myself, the Sodfather, uh, to spend a little time talking about his experience and what he's been learning and why that would be important to people in the animal agriculture realm and specifically, of course, to those people who are raising ruminants so that we can get to enjoy ruminant animal products as part of our diet. So Dave Feldman, welcome. Thank you for having me, Peter. It's a pleasure. So Dave is a software engineer. I think you've described yourself as a systems engineer at some point, or is that me misremembering? Well, it's tricky. I, I would say I'm a software engineer and entrepreneur Part of the reason that emphasis has to be put out there is a lot of times I'm in a position of being the architect of systems, but a lot of times that means you have, you have field awareness, if you will, of all of the different parts that are coming together. But I actually came up with what's known as client engineering. Client is the, the piece that faces you. And so when you're, uh, when you're pushing the buttons that are on the interface for your iPhone, that's usually made by a client engineer. So if you have a bad user experience, I'm sure you've heard that, then you can blame the person who engineered the client. But you'll also hear server. Server's the, the back end. That's the thing that serves it up. So I, I really worked end to end on both sides with these platforms that we helped to build. But uh, yeah, it, it, that's why saying systems engineer is probably a good term, but it, it can get very complex, no question. Fair enough. Um, so I'm reading some information that I got off your website um, uh, bio material. So you began a low carb, high fat diet in 2015. Mm -hmm. We... We're talking a little bit ago about when we first met, so it wasn't much after that, but something happened that got your attention after you started that diet. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, I had gotten a blood test called the hemoglobin A1C. You may be familiar with it as something that they look at to help detect if you're developing diabetes. And my test came back as a 6.1 and it was the second year in a row that was a 6.1 and this is considered pre-diabetic. Well, on my dad's side of the family, diabetes is rampant. And so type two diabetes is rampant. And so I thought, oh my gosh, well, I don't wanna head into that direction. What should I do? I start going to the forums, diabetic forums and I hear about this LCHF diet, low carb, high fat. And after I decide to start on it, I feel almost like I found a cheat code. I start feeling great. I lose weight, even though I wasn't really trying to lose weight. I think my BMI was maybe 25. So I wasn't really considered overweight by my wife or my family, but I lose weight. I get more into shape. I was training with running at that time. And my, my training improved. Everything just seemed better and better. And so at the point where I was getting my blood work around seven months later, I thought I was going to just knock it out of the park, that everything would be just way better in every respect. And it almost was just about everything in my blood panel was fantastic, save 
two important markers, total and LDL cholesterol. So my cholesterols, my cholesterol levels had skyrocketed and that freaked me out. I, I kind of panicked, frankly, and had to understand, you know, as an engineer, I, we want to get under the hood ourselves. So I, I started to learn everything I could about this, the field of study for this, which is known as lipidology. And I was surprised to find a pattern in the way that the system that moves around cholesterol in our body, in our blood, is very much like a network, uh, which I work on all the time as a software engineer. And that's, that's kind of where my story began. It was, it was pretty exciting. Okay, so let's, let's maybe hit a few points before we continue. Um, typically, there are guidelines. Well, first of all, we should say that neither of us are medical doctors and people should not take our advice or the information we're presenting as um, medical advice, that people should always work with their healthcare providers. Um, but I think we're both more than willing to share sources and information so that people can have informed conversations with their healthcare providers. Everybody Absolutely. Got that? Right, good. Okay, good. We're covered. Legal says we're covered. Okay, good. Um, there are typically guidelines for what total cholesterol should be, correct? Yes, although this kind of can shift at times, it's, it's generally considered to be ideal for your total cholesterol to be under 200 milligrams per deciliter. Okay, and so that's the... I'll, I'd say American units. I was about to say English units, except if you're in England, it's going to be um, millimoles per liter. Millimoles per liter, and there are conversion factors. Do you, off the top of your head, remember what that is? I want to say I think it's five millimoles per liter around there. Okay. Um, but as ironically, we have a tool hmm. on our website that helps Which is uh, convert it. Uh, the website's cholesterolcode.com. And so just, just so I can be a hundred percent sure, I'm going to, I'm going to pop on over here and just Excellent. feed in 200 because I know it is 200 and mm -hmm. yeah, it's, uh, oh, no, sorry. I'll change it back to that. 5.17 millimoles per liter. Okay. And, and so that 200 is taken, as you said, ideally less. So it's certainly the common thought would be that if you're below that level, you're at a, a safe level for heart disease, which is the primary concern as I understand it. However, the statistics really don't justify that confidence in being at that level of total cholesterol is my impression, would you agree? Well, <laughs> there's, a, there's a bit of unpacking to do there. Sure. So certainly there's a way I like to approach this subject, which is to talk about the, I like to use the hospital analogy. So the concept behind a hospital down the road is that if you get hurt or if you get sick and you go to the hospital, you expect that it's probably, probably, 
going to be a net gain if you feel you're in need of attention at a hospital. But you, Peter, and me, we know that there's actually a risk of error if you go to a hospital. There is hospital error, and that can result in further injury or even death, right? That's possible. Mm -hmm. uh, hospital, however, you're making a cost-benefit uh, analysis. You're saying, well, all things considered, I think probably if I'm severely injured, I, I'd be better treated going to the hospital than not, right? So the reason I set up this analogy is I now want to change it up a little bit. I want to say, oh, but what if there's a catastrophe nearby? Let's say all of a sudden there's a tornado that goes through, let's say the whole city is on fire and now the hospital is getting overwhelmed. It has all kinds of patients coming in. Would we be surprised if the error rate in the hospital climbs? Hmm. Probably not, right? They didn't staff for that. Well, the reason I bring this up is what we're going to be talking about when we're talking about cholesterol and what's dangerous about it is something known as atherosclerosis. That's the buildup of plaque in the arterial wall. And the question that I've had as an engineer this entire time is we already have existing processes inside of our body that deal with, for example, internal wounds, uh, that deal with infarcts and so forth. Uh, there's a, it's a process that's a bit complicated, but it's called hemostasis. It's Hemo is blood, stasis is like control, keeping it level. And I've wondered how much of atherosclerosis, at least particularly in the earlier stages, is part of your body's attempt to assert control over an area of, uh, of damage that's had um, uh, what's known as an inflammatory response that comes back to it. And that you can overwhelm that. You can continually injure, continually create the catastrophe that's next to the uh, would-be hospital. And so the reason I bring this up in the case of cholesterol is how much is it, can we be sure that cholesterol is the infiltrator and not the emergency, you know, the emergency vehicle that's trying responders. to come. Yeah, the first responders, exactly. And unfortunately, it does get a bit complicated to a degree that I know I don't want to bore all your listeners to. But this brings me back to why answering that question is an important one. Because as you know, there's a particular term, a three-word term that I use all the time that's used in medical literature, and it's called all-cause mortality. So I'm going to say two things that mean that you need to know together. One is that I do think if your intent is to die less of cardiovascular disease, it does make sense to bring down your cholesterol as low as you possibly can get it. But that's exactly equivalent to if you want to die of something that is not cardiovascular disease, then you should get your cholesterol down as low as you can get it. We don't really care as much about the specific, about dodging one specific outcome of disease. If that were true, then I have, Peter, as you know, a great diet that will reduce your chance of dying of cardiovascular disease by 99%. What was that diet? It's called the cyanide diet. Oh. <laughs> And if you start tomorrow, unless you have a heart attack in between now and tomorrow, it's an all but guarantee that what you die of will not be heart disease. So no, the reason we like all cause mortality is because it's not, it's not worth it if the intervention we take results in the death of something that's not 
that endpoint that's not cardiovascular disease sooner. Sure. What we care about is just do we live longer, or for that matter, are we healthier longer? Or and happier, so, or mm, yes. Yeah. And so when somebody comes to me, and I hope when they come to you and they say, "Hey, I like to look at studies that look at cholesterol and its association with cardiovascular disease," that your follow-up question is, "But how much does cholesterol associate with longevity? How much does cholesterol associate with?" health span and how much does it uh, associate with cognition and for that yeah i feel actually very comfortable saying certainly observational data is pretty clear that generally there's an association with high cholesterol and living longer in fact uh, i got my hands on the inhanes data last year and i was i was surprised at those people not only in their 90s who were still recorded as alive when 15 years earlier, they had some of the highest cholesterol in their cohort, but that the centenarians, those people who were recorded as still being alive in the NHANES data set, they all had LDL cholesterol that was well above uh, what the recommended levels are. Or, or to put it another way, there wasn't any in that data set at that time for which the cholesterol that was recorded 15 years earlier before they were followed up on was in the quote unquote optimal levels. Now I say this with all of the caveats that, hey, this is epidemiological data, it's associational and it shouldn't be taken as causal. But all of that said, all of that said, what is good about epidemiological data is when it runs exactly counter to what the expectation is. Mm -hmm. So it's, so epidemiology isn't good at proving causation, but it really is good at knocking down claims of causation when it runs exactly counter to expectations. So, sorry, I know that was a very long answer to your question, but- No, that, that's perfect. Um, yeah. I, I think that we also, and it's one of the th points that I try to make that when you're working with free living human beings, there are limitations to the quality of data that you can obtain. There are limitations ethically to the rigor of studies that you can conduct and get highest quality information from. Um, when you're working with human beings. And I think that's completely justified. Um, but the problem comes when we don't recognize those limitations and then we start talking confidently about our interpretation from weaker quality evidence, not just because of its nature and because of the limitations of what we possibly can do. So we, we started this by going off at perhaps on total cholesterol. And I mentioned to you before that um, I've had many people come up to me at presentations and say, well, my doctor tells me that I have high cholesterol. And I asked them, do you know what numbers you have for triglycerides or HDL cholesterol or LDL cholesterol. And they don't even know their number for total cholesterol. They just know they were told it was high. So perhaps we should spend some time talking about how you can have cholesterol in LDL and cholesterol in HDL, which is the same molecule, but it's good in one place and bad in another. Yes. So anybody getting a typical, it's often called a lipid panel, will get four values. Total cholesterol we hear about all the time. 
LDL cholesterol often has a mnemonic. You can help remember it. The L is for lousy, as in it's considered the bad cholesterol. And HDL is considered the good cholesterol. So the mnemonic is the H is for happy. It's the happy cholesterol. And then there's triglycerides. And triglycerides is a measure of fat in the blood. So let me back up to what what this difference is with LDL and HDL. So when they say LDL cholesterol, what they really mean, as you just said, cholesterol itself is the same molecule, whether it's on LDL or HDL. But when I say on, what I mean is it's literally on the inside of a, of a carrier protein called a lipoprotein. You can think of it as a lipid carrying protein. And the best way to think of it is it's kind of like a boat. Your body makes these boats because lipids are normally water insoluble. So if you mix oil with water, it doesn't mix really well. So what your body does in, in its genius is it says, well, hey, my cells do need lipids. They, not, just, not just cholesterol and not just uh, triglycerides for energy, but they also need fat-soluble vitamins like A, D, E, and K. These things are all lipids. They they don't mix well in the blood. So I'm gonna make this big macro protein that's going to carry them called a lipoprotein. Now, what happened was, is way back in the day, they found that cholesterol was, was common within the arteries of people had within the plaque in the arteries, uh, particularly in animal models, but also uh, in humans, and they said, nah, this, this may relate to cholesterol that you're actually eating. And indeed, over time, it was found that those people had a higher fat diet that seemed to include a lot of cholesterol, that maybe the dietary cholesterol would end up in our bloodstream. Well, then in time, they learned that there were these, these proteins that carry them, and they would start stratifying them out. And pretty soon they divided them into these two classes, into LDL and HDL. And what they found is, is if, they, if they divided them out, the LDL, the higher amount of LDL you had, the more that was associated with the buildup of these plaques, with the heart disease. But conversely, the more of the cholesterol that was found in these other proteins, in the HDL, the more that was exactly the reverse, the higher your cholesterol found in these, the less you had cardiovascular disease. Now triglycerides, that was really kind of a, a, later, um, a later identified marker that became of enormous interest, which is why would there be more fat that was also carried by these same proteins sitting out there in the bloodstream? And what they posit is that um, because it has an association with cardiovascular disease, that perhaps when these proteins have a lot of them, they become more atherogenic, which is to say they, they can create more of this disease. And what I'm here to tell you is that I definitely have a very different view. My, my view is the following. My view is what happened to me five years ago was I didn't realize it, but I was making a choice to be powered more by fat because I'm being powered more by fat, including fatty meats and cheeses and so on and so forth, and less by carbohydrates, I needed to traffic more of that fat in my bloodstream. And the, the primary thing that's being carried by those proteins are the thing I just mentioned, the triglycerides. 
And this may seem unintuitive because for anybody who's listening, who's, you know, heard of a low carb diet, they go, this doesn't make sense. The triglycerides go down in the bloodstream, typically when you go on a low carb diet. And what I would say is actually what's really happening is you're getting better at using the triglycerides in your blood. You're both trafficking more of them and they're being removed from your bloodstream. Part of how they get carried to those tissues that, get you, that use them in your bloodstream is on these lipoproteins. In fact, the primary one that brings it to your, uh, to your tissues from storage is known as a VLDL, which not a lot of people hear about, but VLDLs remodel to LDLs. So if I'm trafficking a lot of this fat to fuel myself, those VLDLs can help explain why there's more LDLs. And that's why when you brought up earlier, Peter, you brought up uh, what, when you're asking people, what are their triglycerides and HDL? Certainly, you know that I care a lot about those two markers because those tell us how successful that trafficking is. So if you are successful at trafficking these fats, you will tend to see your HDL go up and you'll tend to see your triglycerides go down, whatever your LDL levels are, whatever diet you're on. That's why HDL and triglycerides, and you can fact check me on this, have way more association with cardiovascular disease than LDL. The reason you don't hear about them a lot though, is there's just not a lot you can do with them in medicine. There's a lot you can do with them in a lifestyle, but there's not a lot you can do with them medically speaking. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've, we've, we've shared, you've shared a great deal of information in a relatively short time, but we're trying to build a foundation to then build the rest of your story on. Uh, because when I first met you, um, you had begun to do a series of um, self-experimentation. So we can talk in a little bit about citizen science, but um, it was kind of remarkable what you were building up in terms of a data set. So you had had this experience where you felt like you were getting, making an improvement in your health. Um, and then you went in expecting to get good news. And I, I, I sometimes refer to it, and you can correct me if you think I'm off base, but we, we live in an age when our lab values get plugged into the software, which has fields that are defined such that if a number is outside of a predetermined field, it changes the font color and inserts texts automatically. And, and there's no interpretation, it's all just software. And so now you get this result back that's saying, you're going to die. So why don't we pick up the story from there? You know, there's actually, there's a term I use for this that I've used for years. I call it boldface type medicine, which is truly, I mean, how many people do you know who have this experience? They're waiting for their doctor in the waiting, in the, you know, in the room that they're seated in and their doctor comes in and they're hold, the doctor comes in holding their labs and is already looking through their labs and is, and is spotting every, everywhere where there's boldface type. And the boldface type is what identifies if something's in range or out of range. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to oversimplify it too much, but I do think there, 
there is some degree of oversimplification in that if it's just as simple as observing where something is out of range, and then that becomes a matchmaking experience where it's just like, oh, well, when this is out of range, we match yes. it with, you know, this drug. And oftentimes you'll hear, oh, and, you know, we've heard good things about this drug and some of my patients have been doing well on this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, that's, I'll concede, I, ha I, I have a little trouble with that because I, I being a systems guy, I'm always thinking about things in terms of root cause. So if you have a problem, particularly if it's showing up in lots of things that seem unexplained, but they're also carrying other symptoms and so forth, then I want to understand what, what's the origin of it, which is how I ended up, you know, getting on these forums with diabetes. Well, so in, in that respect, as I started looking it up, I found out there's a term for this. It's called functional medicine. And that's why there's something known as functional doctors. But, but I... <laughs> It's like, isn't that all medicine? Like, isn't the point of medicine to help cure the cause of the disease? And for what it's worth, again, I, I think all doctors, or at least the vast, vast majority of doctors are, are certainly well-meaning and uh, mean to do right by their patients and care very much. But at the same time, I do, I do wish that there was more emphasis on getting past this boldface type and getting to, you know, what... What helps to bring it to the next step? And I think you and I have met many doctors, uh, certainly in the low-carb sphere, but also outside of the low-carb sphere, mm -hmm. who at a minimum, at a minimum, have come around to nutrition and how much uh, nutritional deficiencies and understanding how the body needs to function can create these maladies so that we're not trying to mask the symptoms and instead getting to the root cause. And for all of the ranchers and farmers and veterinarians in the audience, what a remarkable idea that would be that proper nutrition is the beginning point for animal health. Um, radical. So um, we're, we're, you, I don't know that you, where we took that rather extensive side road, but I think it was important and necessary. So you um, began digging into what might explain how, I'll put it this way, and you can feel free to correct it. If, if in fact, you're lowering your A1C, you're reducing your risk of heart disease. Um, you're improving these risk factors for heart disease, and yet this LDL cholesterol, total cholesterol numbers, they go up. And in the current day, those are seen as being um, indicating increased risk of heart disease. So now you've got kind of these two things playing off against each other. And so um, what did Dave do then? Yeah, pretty early on, I got to recognizing the risks associated with each of these different factors. You just mentioned, yeah, my A1C had gone down. My waist to hip ratio changed. My blood pressure went down. All of these things you associate, not just with greater risk, but greater risk of cardiovascular disease, all improved, save the one that everyone's focused on which is LDL cholesterol, especially the so-called bad cholesterol. And so, yeah, to, to return to my journey, 
what happened was, is after that fateful blood test in November of 2015, which is five years ago this month, by the way, I'm having lots of nostalgia right now. I, I said, oh, wait a sec, wait a sec, wait a sec. If this, if this higher level of cholesterol is really an energy distribution network, it's really just my body saying, oh, well, you're going to be powered more by fat. Well, that comes with more trafficking of cholesterol because it, it ride shares in these same proteins that are carrying your fat, then expect that. That's just going to be part of the deal. I had to know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, but first I had to know how it worked. So you've seen the graphs. You saw them from when I did the presentation and we first met in Breckenridge. That was about a year and a half in, and it showed you know, what I colloquially call right now the inversion pattern, where surprisingly, uh, the more fat I ate, the lower my cholesterol went. The less fat I ate, the higher my cholesterol went. And the reason for that is it's a tiny bit complicated, but hear me out since I, so I talked through enough on the boats up to this point. I mentioned these boats are coming mainly from fat, from storage. Those are the VLDLs. The VLDLs are made by a very important organ in your body known as the liver. It's kind of your metabolic brain. And what it's doing is it's sending out those VLDLs from your stored fat mainly, but you're counterbalancing that with the fat you're bringing in from the outside, from the fat you're eating, which comes from the gut. And those are in another kind of lipoprotein called chylomicrons. You don't need to remember that. You just need to remember this. Chylomicrons, they distribute their fat and they disappear right away. But VLDLs, a lot of those VLDLs, they'll remodel to LDLs and they'll remain in your bloodstream for two to four days. And that's why when I ate a lot of fat, I was bringing in a lot of these chylomicrons. Well, then my body's like, oh, it doesn't need to make, my, my liver's like, it doesn't need to make as many VLDLs. Therefore, there's less downstream LDLs. And that's what gave me the confidence. That was the early stage where I was like, aha, this is really about that fat trafficking. It's re the, the, my resulting cholesterol levels are the, the last piece of a very long chain that started with what my diet was and what I'm powered by. And therefore I could, I could, Peter, right now, if, you know, if I had the, if I had the time, I really could do this. You could write down a number between 75 and 300 and give me five to seven days and I'll move my LDL cholesterol to that number, or, or at least within 20, 30 milligrams per deciliter. And I'll bet you won't take me up on that bet right now, because I'll bet you think I could do it. Right. Yes. And it's, it's because I understand now, five years later, just how much metabolism can impact your cholesterol levels, particularly if you're metabolically healthy. And that's super, super important for anybody who's considering having more fat in their diet, especially if it's in the form of animal products. Because if you're gonna be powered more by fat, then your, your body is gonna make more use of the fat you know, in your fat cells that is potentially going to increase the trafficking of these VLDLs and therefore possibly increase your LDL cholesterol. That's one possible influence on your LDL levels. So, so let me make sure I'm getting this right. If, if everyone advises that people who are overweight or obese should lose excess body fat, yes? 
Yes. By, by doing that, they are for a period of time going to be raising their LDL cholesterol because of what the body has to do to move um, fat from stores to use. Is that, did I just hear that right? Well, here's where I have to throw in another piece of the puzzle. It depends. <laughs> it, it does depend. So when, when you're going from say obese to overweight, when you're losing the fat that's coming out of your fat cells, a lot of that, that free fat that's coming out can be used by neighboring tissues. That's, that's the reason we have this, this padding of fat all over our body is it's kind of like the local stores of fat okay. to our neighboring, like our muscle tissue and our organs and so forth, right? So if you have a lot of, it's called subcutaneous. If you have a lot of subcutaneous fat to lean muscle mass, then you have plenty, you're stocked, your local grocer to your muscle cells is plenty stocked. It's fine. It doesn't need to traffic as much on those lipoproteins because the lipoproteins are like the global traffickers, right? Mm -hmm. So in a sense, a lot of people who go on a low carb, high fat diet, if they're going from obese to overweight, so they're still losing weight, but they're still, you know, they'd still like to be leaner a lot of times. They may not see their cholesterol rise that substantially. It's because they already have the fat all around to traffic. It's kind of a simplistic way of putting it, but that's the gist of it. But if we go to the other end of the scale, let's say you're already athletic, let's say you're already lean. Well, then, Actually, as you become more fat adapted, there's a very good reason for your body to globally traffic around fat because you don't have as much uh, of those fat cells, the subcutaneous fat to lean body mass. So they have to share those resources more. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. they, they have to restock the local stores a bit more. So it takes more global. So yes, it does depend, but at the end of the day, this is the confusing part that a lot of people need to understand. At the end of the day, the cholesterol levels you detect in the blood, it's not a reflection of the production level of the cholesterol. That's what everyone thinks, is how much you, you get a snapshot of something. It's like getting a snapshot of traffic from a 50,000 foot view. You, can't, you don't really know how many of those cars are to the on-ramp and how many are going off the off-ramp from looking at a highway. And if you don't, and you may not know how fast they're moving, any of that. What I'm telling you is I feel very strongly about this. When you're looking at somebody who's very lean and they're athletic and their uh, HDL is high and their triglycerides are low and their LDL is high, alongside all of that, I believe that they are turning over a fat store. They're turning over those triglycerides really rapidly. And that really a lot of the cholesterol you're seeing in their bloodstream is recycled because just like those boats, just like those lipoproteins, a lot of this just has more throughput. It just has more that turns around. Uh, and so I, sorry, yes, it is a, it, it depends answer, but this is, this is why we see this difference with, um, you probably heard of Verda. Maybe a lot of your, your listeners haven't, but Verda is a, it's a program. It's, a, it's also a company that works with, um, uh, a lot of people are very obese, very diabetic. And those people don't see this kind of hyper response as much as say those people who work with Finney and Volick. Finney and Volick is another group, but they work with a lot of athletic 
low carbers. Both these groups I'm talking about, they're low carb, but the verdict group tends to be like BMI of 45 or 50. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas the Volek and Finney, those, you know, they're going to be like 20 BMI of 20 to like 25, maybe, but a lot of them are sub 20. Mm-hmm. And that second group, the athletic group, they tend to have super, super high levels of LDL. And their LDL, I'm confident, went up because of going low carb because they're trafficking more of these VLDLs, which result in more LDLs. Well, I can I can tell you from personal experience that um, I recently had um, a total cholesterol of over 200 uh, triglycerides that were below my HDL cholesterol, and I was uh, offered a prescription. It's very common, yes. Yeah. So, um, okay. The so you mentioned that you can shift dramatically your LDL cholesterol. Now, uh, maybe unfair question, but in the medications that are available, what range are they saying they can? see or expect with their cholesterol lowering medications? Oh, as in what can they get their cholesterol levels to? Or on the changes with certain classes of medication? Yes. Yeah, you said something about taking 75 to 300 as being what you've done with lifestyle. Right. Sometimes pretty weird. I mean, the bologna (laughs) white bread diet is, we'll get, maybe get to that. But with these medications, what do they even claim to be able to do? Oh, well, they, they can for sure. They can in a combination of say statins plus something known as a PCSK9 inhibitor. PCSK9 is a protein that uh, it's, it's a protein Sorry, I'm going to get geeky again for a moment. PCSK9 is is a protein that tags the LDL receptors. You have receptors on your cells that that attach to LDL that can take it in and clear it. And PCSK9 is a protein that attaches to that receptor and says, "Uh, actually, let's make that receptor go away. Let's not have that receptor. So when you have PCSK9 in your you know, working actively, they're removing LDL receptors. And because of that, there's less clearance of the LDL. And so that can get it really low to where you have people who have LDL of let's say 20 or 30 milligrams per deciliter, extremely low. They can get it to those levels when they combine PCSK9 inhibitors. It inhibits that protein along with say a statin, like a high dose statin. So they can get it very, very low. Okay. Um, so you, the, 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 when you saw this inverse and let's make sure that we hit this again, that as you ate more now, was it total fat? Was it saturated fat? Was it fat from animals versus plants? What can you I would, I would say it's, I would say it's generally total fat, but probably a mix of, I want to say maybe 40 to 50% saturated fat to monounsaturated fat with a little bit of polyunsaturated fat. As you know, anything you eat has all three fats in it. Anything you eat 
period. Mm -hmm. uh, unless it's like a highly processed rendered version, but a whole food version of anything, including lettuce has all three fats in it. It's just what the combination is, right? Um, so, so yeah, my comment- The more of that you ate, the lower your LDL cholesterol went and correct. the reverse. There was something else that you said at some point, and I'm out of sequence now, but you said that um, fast for some people fasting prior to getting your blood test may actually result in an elevated level relative to other states. Did I remember that right? No, that's absolutely true. And although I need to insert this real quick. I do recommend for everybody, if you're getting blood tests, try to get them in the morning and do try to be at least 12 to 14 hours water only fasted. You want, you want your blood test to be consistent and comparable from one date to the next, especially if you're only getting them once a year. And the problem is, is I already know now, I, I've, I've had a total, uh, it sounds so ridiculous now, but I've had a total of 133 blood draws in the last five years, since November of 2015. Blood draws. Blood draws, right. And Dang. Do you yeah. have like leather for veins now? Are they <laughs> going between your toes? What are you doing? You know, it's funny. I do actually have them have rotate sites. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. So, so we're kind of skipping over one key component for anybody who wants to know why it's because this is what I go through to do my experiments. I try to get, I try to get lab grade data and I've done a total of 52 experiments. Some of them have just been like a few hours. Some of them have been literally like a month and a half. Okay. Uh, actually my weight gain experiment, I think was two months. Um, no longer actually, cause it's the weight gain and weight loss. Anyway, to, to dial it back for a second. Yeah. The, if you fast the original version of ketosis before the ketogenic diet, was the natural survival mechanism we have where we do go on a high fat diet. The, the thing is it's an endogenous high fat diet. We're living off our own fat. So if you yourself, if you've never been on a keto diet, but you decide, Peter, you're gonna not eat anything for three days, guess what? You're going into ketosis because your body correctly goes, oh, oh my gosh, we don't, we don't have anything coming in. We need to free up more of those fatty acids in your subcutaneous fat. And now we need to live off them. And guess what? Guess what's probably going to increase? And there's plenty of data, plenty of studies on this long before I got into it. Your LDL will increase. And I believe your LDL will increase because guess what? All of those additionally freed up free fatty acids coming out of your subcutaneous fat are getting taken up by your liver, making VLDLs. And then as those VLDLs drop off their cargo, their triglyceride cargo, they make LDLs. And that would explain why your LDL goes up. So fat like cholesterol is not soluble in water, unlike glucose, which is. So yes. we don't have to package glucose to get it around, but there does need to be a transport system, the boats that you've been referring to. So... Did you also do similar work with total uh, caloric intake and response? Yeah. yeah, in fact, I I just completed an experiment that was 15 days long. I was 
on a ketogenic diet throughout the first five days of it, I ate exactly the same diet each day. It was around 22, 2200, 300 calories. I even eating the eating, eating, the same meal at the same times. It was at uh, 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. and 6 p.m. I have to look back at the data. It's up on cholesterolcode.com in case you're interested. And at the end of each of these five phases, I took a wide spectrum blood test. The first one was maintenance level. So I wouldn't gain or lose weight. Mm -hmm. The second one was a hypocaloric, hypo as in low caloric. And it was exactly half of what the first five days were. And as I predicted, my cholesterol went up in the hypocaloric because guess what? I have less chylomicrons coming in. I need to rely more on VLDLs and therefore my LDL cholesterol goes up. Mm -hmm. And then the last five days was hypercaloric as in high calorie ketogenic. And then boom, my total cholesterol and my LDL plummet and my HDL goes up and my triglycerides go down. And Again, all as I would have anticipated because of the turnover. The name of the game when it comes to energy usage with fat is turnover. You, these boats that I'm talking about, they're not one-time use. Glucose, as you just mentioned earlier, it's a simple molecule. It's soluble in the bloodstream. You take it up and that's it. It's out there, right? It's gone. In the, in the case of these large lipoproteins, they're like ships. They're like gigantic tankers full of these lipids that your cells use and your cells it's it's multi-stage multi-use so the first stage generally is when they have a lot of this cargo that your cells are using if i can fit in one thing too which kind of brings it back to all cause mortality a question that i would ask earlier and that i finally got the answer to a few months into my research is well wait a sec why would the body want to leave these empty boats after they dropped off their car, why would they leave them in the bloodstream for two to four days? And as it turns out, lipoproteins, particularly these ApoB lipoproteins, that's that lipoprotein that carries it, they have immune and host defense properties. They can bind to pathogens. They carry something known as alpha tocopherol, which is actually vitamin E. Uh, which is an antioxidant. And literally it's active. That antioxidant is active in that monolayer of the boat. In other words, if they come into contact with reactive oxygen species, they turn both it and the, the reactive oxygen species into non-reactive products. So it's, it's absolutely valid to say lipoproteins are part of your antioxidant defense system. And there's, there's animal model studies that actually demonstrate this. And like, for example, with something known as lipopolysaccharides. I know you're familiar with all this. And I'm sorry if I'm, if I'm geeking out a bit much here, but th the point is lipoproteins, I believe, I believe part of our defense um, in the immune response is very much reliant on lipoproteins. And there is actually a lot of data that's out there on that, which I think is very compelling in my opinion. And it's why it can explain I believe why there could be lower all-cause mortality at higher levels of LDL. Okay, so let's make sure that folks have heard that message, that evidence, so again, all-cause mortality, your risk of dying, period, versus dying of some 
specific thing, in this case, a cardiovascular event. And specifically, I think it's a heart attack as the, the, the vascular event that they're most concerned about. Yes? Yes. So the best evidence shows that the higher the LDL level, the lower your all-cause mortality. I, I'm going to be a good scientist and say, I don't know that I can say the best evidence shows because we don't have a good way, as you just mentioned earlier, we don't have a good way of getting the best evidence because free living humans don't let us do an RCT on them for 50 okay. years, for Fair example. Enough. Right. The, 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 the quality of the evidence that shows increased all-cause, well, sorry, decreased all-cause mortality with increased LDL cholesterol is certainly as good or better than the evidence that has driven dietary advice to everyone needs to drive down LDL cholesterol, total cholesterol, limit your fat, uh, eat lots of carbohydrates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I would say I would say it contradicts that narrative. I I again I try to be a good scientist and say, look, I don't. It, here's where I can give you an answer that I've never been able to really give until recently, mm -hmm. which is the good news is that this research that I've stumbled into because I had no interest at all in in this space, nutrition, science, etc. About five years ago, the good news is that group that I mentioned earlier the people who seem metabolically healthy, but are low carb and therefore have sky high LDL. From a scientific standpoint, they may be the ones to provide the best evidence. Not, not just with all cause mortality, but with atherosclerosis in particular. Mm -hmm. So there's, you already know this name pretty well, but I'm gonna set it up for your audience. We, we generally call those people who see their LDL increase, not just a little bit, but by a lot if they go on a low carb diet as hyper responders. And there's a, a term I coined three years ago that I probably would rename differently now if I knew it'd become as prominent as it has, but it was observational at the time, which is I call these lean mass hyper responders who have a combination of three, uh, not just the high LDL, but I specify the high HDL cholesterol and the low triglycerides. So the combination of these three, I call the triad. And there's a huge number of people. It spans all ages, genders, ethnicities that exhibit this triad that the engineer in me is just absolutely dumbfounded that it's so, it's so ubiquitous. And they all talk like I did five years ago. They go, I don't get it. I feel better than I ever have in my life. You know, all these problems have gone away but my doctor is absolutely going out of their mind trying to convince me to change because my cholesterol is so high. And for what it's worth, again, trying to be a good scientist, I don't say, hey, I know for sure that you're, everything's fine. Right. But for those people who want to scale back from it, the energy model can be a way for which, for example, you can replace some fat calories with carb calories and that helps you out. But there is a number of people, myself included, that for right now are what I like to say are cautiously optimistic. Yeah. And, and the good news, the, yeah. you know, I was just gonna say the good news is 
we have a study that you know, because a year ago on a Houston stage, I announced that I was putting this together and we're right on the verge of launching it. We're going to take those people, those lean mass hyperresponders, we're going to get a hundred of them. And we're going to get CT angiograms of them at baseline. CT angiograms are fantastic. They're a um, they're basically, we're getting a scan of the geography of their vascular system, the cardiovascular system at baseline. And then one year later, one year follow-up at the level of LDL cholesterol that they have, existing conventional medicine would say they should absolutely be, they, they should definitely have rapidly progressing atherosclerosis. That's what conventional medicine would tell us it expects of them right now. So we're going we're to find out, Peter, we're going to get that best data, in my opinion, because we've never had this before. Anytime people have had high LDL that they get studied, th this is my big complaint. A lot of these studies we're talking about, they're on sick populations. They're on populations that already are at high risk. They already have inflammation. A lot of times the baseline requirement is that they're already inflamed, mm -hmm. uh, such as the Jupiter study. And I, in the engineer in me is like, why don't we look at healthy populations <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. and the marker of interest and then see if the problem rests there so that we know the direction of causality. Doesn't that make sense? It does. It does. You, I, I love to watch engineers cut around medicine. It's, it's just so <laughs> entertaining. Um, so I guess one thing to mention, um, there certainly are... Um, tests that people can request if they start getting concerned you could look for uh, and and find some physicians that are perhaps uh, more familiar with what happens in patients undergoing uh, nutritional ketosis uh, maybe more familiar with some uh, coronary calcium scans or insulin um, estimation or HOMA IR or things besides just the standard lipid panel and, and let the conversation sort of stop there. There's additional information that I would encourage people to working with physicians um, seek that information because I think, like you said, there's good news. There's, there's really good news. Um, and for people in animal agriculture who have been used to being told that the products of their efforts, wherever they occur in the supply chain, that their product is, you know, essentially a health risk. Um, and that eating red meat will increase your risk of heart disease and, and who knows, baldness, oops, um, or whatever else, that it's certainly more complicated than we've been led to believe. And there's a growing number of people who through personal experience or through research can now point to evidence to say, maybe not, maybe a diet for people who are in the pre-diabetic state, maybe it would be more important to focus on the carbohydrate content in that diet than in reducing the animal source food in the diet. Yeah, well, you mentioned a couple of things I really want to hit. Let me let me back up to the testing because I, I do have a strong opinion on this. I, I do feel that nothing beats the physical testing. So if you're 
if you're concerned about heart disease, if your doctor is concerned about heart disease, yes, I, I highly recommend the CTA, the one I just mentioned, is really kind of the gold standard, but there is, there is a radiation dose to consider, uh, but it, it covers both hard and soft plaque. It's really powerful that way. But one that I think is a no-brainer is no-brainer that a lot of people get if they're concerned about heart disease risk and that I think is a great test is a CAC, a coronary artery calcification scan. And I definitely think that it's, it can tell you a lot about where your risk stands. Generally speaking, while it doesn't detect all soft plaque, it correlates pretty strongly with heart disease risk and especially if you can track it in progression. And then you also mentioned the CIMT. I kind of think of that as sort of a third choice to those, which is a, a carotid intima media thickness scan. It's basically a, uh, an ultrasound of your carotid arteries, the ones that line the right and left side of your neck. Uh, but it also can pick up, for example, bumps of plaque and so forth if there is the potential on risk. But physical measurements, it's like the top tier. Whatever your blood markers are, if you see physical measurements of plaque or stenosis or something like that, that's, that's the real deal. That is something to consider. Um, but I do, I do know many people got on a low-carb diet. They have high LDL. They fight with their doctors. And then what they end up usually doing is negotiating with their doctors to go, uh, look, if I go get a scan, will that satisfy you at least for the time being? And a lot of times that does work. A lot of times for the doctors, if they see that, they're clear. There's not so much a problem. But the second tier to that is, much as I like lipid markers, the second tier to physical markers, I would say, is inflammatory markers. Inflammation is, it's, it kind of gets a bad rap as though you, wanna, you want to fight inflammation. Actually, inflammation is your body fighting for you. And the the reason it gets associated, associated with bad things is because usually it's bad things that draw out the natural inflammation of your body. We would all die without inflammation. So it's, it's the built-in, it's the emergency workers we're talking about. Mm -hmm. If your inflammatory markers are high, and one of my favorites, for example, is C-reactive protein, that is a cause for concern. It can, it can be a false positive. For example, if you work out really hard, you might have a high CRP. But let's say you have a chronically high CRP, even if it's very rested and fasted and so forth. I think that's worth investigating and that does associate with greater heart disease. So definitely look to that next. And I know a lot of doctors who even without the physical scans would say, oh, you have low inflammation. I'm not as concerned about your risk for heart disease. So I did wanna cover those two if you don't mind. No. Uh, just real quick, because I, I think that I, we get asked about the testing a lot. And yes, I always say the same thing you do, which is please work with your doctor. But so you know, these are some things that I certainly have an opinion on that you might want to talk to your doctor about. Right. And people can go to cholesterolcode.com and see lots of information, links to presentations. Um, they can find you on Twitter at Dave Keto. I always mess that up. I want to go keto Dave and it doesn't work. Um, yeah, it's funny. You got to put in the right information in order to, it's crazy. Don't you know what I want? Um, so let's see. Um, but I will get, I'll ask, I'll answer your second question real quick. Cause you kind of brought up whether or not meat is, is inherently pathogenic as we would call it, right? Whether it's disease causing and the irony, Peter, is that 
I used to lament that low carb doctors had this wealth of lab data that they get from their patients. And I wanted to see lab data. And in the spirit of be careful what you wish for, Dave, now <laughs> we get sent labs and I'm talking half a dozen to a dozen a day all the time. We see labs constantly. So the very thing I was just talking to you about, inflammatory markers, that's one of the things we look for. We want to see whether the person who, whether the diet that they're on causes high fasting insulin. You mentioned HOMA IR earlier. That's highly associated with cardiovascular disease. C-reactive protein I mentioned, that's highly associated to cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. We, we look for these things. I know people who are eating almost entirely only red meat. And I, I can only say what I know for the short term, short term wise, in just the years since doing this, I know many people who do not seem to be experiencing this. Now, it doesn't mean that this is everybody. Some people still seem to have problems, but also can be coming from a metabolically unhealthy state. It's not across the board, but I do know a lot of people who, if really red meat was specifically causal towards disease, it'd be hard to convince me of that right now, given just the sheer quantity that I've been able to see up to this point. And ancestrally, we'd have a hard time explaining that from an evolutionary point of view. There was a point when you mentioned this lean mass hyper responder that you're seeing across diverse populations. And one of the things that struck me is with that diversity is a great deal of genetic diversity. Okay, we're talking about a species. There's not that much when you look, compare us to maybe another species. And, you know, our cousins, I heard somebody just recently say that they described when we launched ham into, and I'm talking about the champ, up into um, as, as, you know, early part of the space race, they described it as uh, launching 95% of the human genome into space. Um, so, but still those genetic differences are important human to human, you know, culture to culture, people to people. And yet we see this across them the, this lean mass hype, that, that's kind of remarkable. Um, and the other thing that occurs to me is too much of what we've been fed, you should pardon the expression, is a one size fits all approach. And clearly we, we, there are tools available for some of us that we can access. We need to recognize that they're out of the reach of many, unfortunately, and we need to work toward changing that. And then I'm becoming more and more interested in, you know, the global perspective of low and middle income countries where we do see an epidemic of metabolic disease there too. And, and that's a talk for other days, but this this information then feeds back into well surely part of the conversation about sustainable food systems ought to include what should we be eating not necessarily what produces the lowest environmental impact based on some models but what produces the best outcomes for the human beings you're feeding Okay, and, and, and you and I know that I've spoken a lot about, well, happy coincidence, ruminant animal agriculture actually has 
a good story to tell when it comes to environmental impact, et cetera, et cetera. And now we can couple it with the health impact for human beings. So I, this, this is part of your time today is a key block in or a link in this chain that I'm trying to construct forge between producer and consumer um, and, and get us all sort of connected because we're at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we're all concerned about our health and we're concerned about our families and we're concerned about those issues. And I think it's really important information that you're discovering. So I and have discovered and you've promoted um, or publicized would be the word maybe better used. So I would encourage everyone um, to look up Dave Feldman at um, um, cholesterolcode.com. Um, I'm still trying to talk you into the ileal cannulation so that we can do uh, dias um, determination on you, um, but I guess that's a, a test too far for you. Um, it, you'll have to you'll have to explain. Maybe I you, I'm you not remembering put, that one. What's, okay, you you put a port uh, into your abdomen so that you can take digesta out uh, from the junction between the small and large intestine, so that we can <laughs> we know what's going in, and oh. we can measure the amino acid content of that, and then we can measure what is there so we'll know what digested before it gets to be contaminated by the microbes in the large intestine. I'll give it some considered thought. <laughs> uh. Yeah, let me get back to you on that. Well, fortunately, yeah. So uh, fortunately, one of the acceptable models are swine that we use um, as, a, as a model for human digestion. And I, uh, one of my cherished memories is, is the conversation after keto fest um, when we started talking about the difference between true protein and uh, crude protein. Oh yeah. And you know, I, it's funny because yeah, I, I got stunned by this, that you were telling me about crude, crude, this term crude protein. It was like, well, wait a sec. Protein is a very distinct, this is what gets on my nerves as an engineer. Protein is a very very specifically, like very clear cut statement. It, I, I expect that when I learn the term protein and I'm like, oh, okay. And I quite literally done a presentation on it. Oh, it's, it's a string of amino acids, right? Okay, fair enough. That there could be some other term that's getting used for protein that's like grandfathered in. I still, to this day, I like, it blows my mind because there are people deciding right now on something based on what they're told is protein content, which is just flatly false. It's a lie. Yes. <laughs> and it's a, it's like a dangerous lie, frankly. Uh, yeah. And so I was happy because I was at one time, as you know, I was kind of calling dibs on it to mention it Conivericon this year, but I got too busy anyway. So I'm glad you rounded back to it because I, I feel like need to be something that everyone knows. Like everybody should know about this. There's, there's just false advertising on every single label that's saying there's protein when there's actually not by the definition protein. It's still, you see, it still gets me spirited, right? Yes. Just knowing this. Well, next, next dinner, I'll see if I can't continue the tradition by explaining that a gram of carbohydrate isn't always for cacao. Uh, yeah. 
I don't know though. The the crude protein is going to be tough to top. Okay, I, fair enough. Good. The protein is the 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 flat out protein is not protein. Mm, it's a rough one. Okay. And yeah, and and yes. Since then, I looked again at animal versus uh, uh, plant sources. And again, I'm, it's just, it's so frustrating. Like I really wish that there was an alt, like you could go online somewhere and easily see the alternate labels for everything. And oh, yeah. maybe there is, but I just, uh, it's so frustrating. Yeah. Well, so. there's, there's, there's more to do, but um, if I accomplish nothing else, then that will be a tre treasured memory in my <laughs> <laughs> um, so Dave, thank you so much. Um, I truly look forward to the next time that we can get together at some Brazilian steakhouse and enjoy some time together, or even just over a couple cups of coffee, uh, off to the side, or even better listen to what your next presentation is going to be about. So thanks again for your, well, thanks again. Yeah. And thanks again for having me, Peter. Always a pleasure.